You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Before the interview gets started today, I wanted to let you know about another podcast, the Explorers podcast, which I have been listening to for years now. They recently did a four-part series on Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt, which provides some information about what Teddy Roosevelt was up to before the First World War, which is what we will be discussing in the interview, or at least that will be part of what the interview is discussing. So head on over to explorerspodcast.com to find out more information. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, I'm joined by Neil Langteau, historian and author who has written four books, including his latest book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and the Clash Over America's Future, which deals with America's entry into the First World War. Uh, Neil, how's it going today? It's doing great. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Excellent. It's it's great. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Um, let's start off with what is, I'm almost certain, has to be the least known of the three people that are in the title for this book, and that's Jane Addams. You know, I think um, I had heard the name Jane Addams before before reading your book, but I certainly knew, I will say very little about her life and sort of her, her actions during this period. So could you give us, give everybody kind of just an introduction to who Jane Addams was and what she was doing sort of during the period of the book? It's interesting that so many people have forgotten Jane Addams because at the time, I mean, I'm writing about the First World War period, and, and Jane Addams at that time was probably the most famous woman in America, possibly second to Helen Keller, but but in the top top two or three. I mean, she was very, very well known at the time. And she's sort of been forgotten today, which is, I think, a shame because uh, I think her contributions are, are quite significant. But this was a, a very remarkable woman who, who grew up in the Midwest in a childhood privilege and very, very smart woman. Um, and like so many women of the Victorian period, she sort of was thwarted, didn't really know what to do with herself, tried going to medical school, didn't really take a fancy to that. And ultimately, she drifted into something that gave her meaning and purpose, which was the Settlement House Movement. The Settlement House Movement was something that had started in Europe. Basically, these these homes that would be in the middle of immigrant and poor districts, um, which would be set up as sort of as social service centers. They were they were settlement houses, 
Um, and Adams encountered that while she was on a trip to Europe and she decided to establish one in the United States and she established Hull House, which may mean something to some of your listeners. That's probably the most famous settlement house in the United States. And that settlement house in Chicago, Hull House, which was in the immigrant community, um, made her famous for all the good work she was doing there and, and, and sort of working with the poor and, the, and, and helping alleviate the transition to America for immigrants. Um, that put her on the map in the late 19th century, but really that was just the beginning of her career because she soon became involved in just about every kind of liberal cause at the time. And she was very much venerated in the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century as you know, this wonderful woman, this sort of a do-gooder. Um, but there was another side to her because she was someone who was very involved in a lot of fairly radical causes, and pacifism being one of them, which is one of the things we talk about in this book. Um, but also she was very involved in, in um, the civil rights movement, such as it was in the early 1900s, um, capital punishment. I mean, she was, she was a, a really a leading liberal in the United States at that time. And was, as I said, involved in just about every liberal cause. Uh, for the purposes of this book, she was someone who was a main figure in the pacifist movement. She was a pacifist. And when the First, first World War broke out, um, she was, you know, felt it was very, very important for the United States to stay out of this war. But she wasn't a pacifist in the sense that sometimes we think of pacifists today as being something that was about, all about nonviolence. It was more about, you know, we're in the 20th century. Um, we should find other ways to solve these problems rather than going to war and killing each other. I mean, she was an internationalist and she believed that the United States, their role was to find a way to bring these belligerent powers to the peace table. In other words, that should be what we, sh we should be contributing to as far as the war is concerned. We should find a way to get the Germans and, and, and the British to talk, somehow stopping this war. We shouldn't be ourselves involving ourselves in this conflict. So she's going to be a very important figure in, in voicing the opposition to American involvement in the war and finding a way to bring peace to the combatants. Yeah, it's interesting that you kind of described pacifism a little bit because it's it's like an active pacifism almost where it's not just we we are staying out of it. It's we have a a duty or a role in in trying to end uh, the conflict. Yeah, I mean that's what she herself said. She said, you know, we're we are a great country, but we we need to be we need to take a dynamic stance towards the war. And she was wanted President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, to do that. Um, and, and what you see in my book from, you know, the, the war begins in 1914 and we end up getting involved in 1917. But in that period of, of two and a half years, you see Adams and the other pacifists kind of constantly nudging Wilson, do something for peace, try to you know make some sort of peace outreach to bring these countries together. One of the big ideas that Adams had um, voiced by some of the other other pacifist followers was some sort of conference of neutrals. You know, there were a number of neutral countries. The United States was the most important of the neutral countries at this time, as far as the war was concerned, bringing them together, having some sort of neutral conference, and then using that as a sort of a springboard to a larger peace conference, getting the two sides to have a ceasefire and to talk. I mean, there, there was this belief that we can just get them talking, get them to stop fighting, Maybe they can they can they can figure out exactly what's what is keeping this war going. Um, so that was what Adams and her group, her group of pacifists, were pushing for from 1914 to 19, you know, until the war begins in 1917. And I think they believed that Wilson 
thought the same way the, they did. And he sort of played the game. You know, he seemed to be on their side, um, seemed to take most of their arguments at face value. But as time moved on during in between 1915 and 1916, he does start to move to a more aggressive and more uh, belief that the United States will, in fact, have to get involved in the war. Um, but that was sort of the mistake that I think the pacifists made during this period was believing that Wilson was more on their side than he proved to be. And when Wilson does take the country into war in 1917, there is there is a, a certain amount of disenchantment uh, among Adams and others, you know, that almost that they had been played by by Wilson. Interesting. Um, so, so let's let's move move to talking about Wilson a little bit. You know, uh, Wilson is well known to my listeners. You know, we've covered America's entry into the war and, uh, you know, Wilson's role in the post-war sort of peace settlements. But can you talk a little bit about his presidency sort of before 1917, like his role within the country, both before the war and then after the war begins? Well, Wilson is, is such an interesting figure, such a complex figure who we're still talking about 100 years later. Obviously, you know, what Wilson has been most talked about in the last few years has been his racial beliefs. And we're seeing, you know, schools being renamed. Uh, and Wilson was, as I said, I, I talked about it briefly in the book. I mean, there are times when it comes up. Wilson was he was a, he was a product of his environment. He grew up in the South. His family had slaves and he he never could quite get beyond uh, those sort of views about African Americans. So obviously, his his administration sanctioned and and facilitated continued segregation in the federal government, and there was a great deal of uh, anger about that and disillusionment with with Wilson uh, on that basis. Uh, but but coming back to the war, I mean, when the war began in 1914, Wilson's instinct was America should keep out. Um, he was already, however, envisioning a role for the country in the peace process. And he had sort of this idea that if America, you know, sort of stands aside and, and maintains its, the word he used, self-possession, you know, and Wilson himself was very much about self-possession, not losing control of your emotions. He felt if the United States didn't lose control, uh, you know, the, the, the European combatants would, would look to us as, as, as being someone who can step in and help create the peace in the future. So he wanted Americans in 1914, you know, don't take sides, um, you know, try to be as neutral as possible, which of course proved to be a very unrealistic um, because just because of the groups in this country, you know, we're a country of immigrants and you have uh, many German Americans, millions of German Americans who are naturally going to take they're going to they're going to side with the German side, and you have people on the East Coast, many of of English descent, who are going to side with the Allies. Uh, you have Irish; many of them are going to still have great deal of hatred towards towards the British, and they're going to support the Germans. So you have all these groups in America naturally taking sides, and then also what's going to affect this idea of of, of sort of neutrality in the United States, at least in thought. Um, is the invasion of Belgium early in the war, the German invasion of Belgium, which is unbelievably brutal. Um, news of that comes back to the United States, and many Americans are, are instinctively going to turn against Germany. Now, being against Germany does not necessarily mean the United States wants to go to war. It just means that, well, we hope that the Allied side wins. And I think that would probably be the break. If we did a breakdown in the United States in 1915, 16, and 17, probably most of the country preferred to see 
uh, an Allied victory, but not enough where they want to commit troops. Um, so Wilson is going to have a very, very difficult time as the war progresses because both sides are going to sort of commit a number of uh, annoyances, uh, whether it's the British interfering with our trade. And then, of course, there's a submarine issue with the Germans where the Germans are going to, you know, un- when they start attacking uh, ships and Americans are caught in the crossfire. And so Wilson is going to be constantly trying to figure out a way to be tough enough on the Germans and also the British to, to a certain degree, the Allies, but with without potentially involving the country in a war, which he, I think he, he was correct in this. He, he believed most of the country did not want war. Um, but there's also, there's a political dimension where he's going to be running for re-election in 1916. So he has to always be concerned about how some of the decisions uh, are going to play out. And when the Lusitania is sunk in the spring of 1915, that's probably the first major crisis he faces. And there is there is a, probably a slight groundswell temporarily for war, uh, which I think fades very quickly. But I think many Americans realize at that point they really weren't quite as safe as they thought and that this war could very much involve American lives uh, on a regular basis. And Wilson had a very important decision to make after the Lusitania, and he made that very famous speech, which I talk about in the book, um, after the Lusitania was sunk. Everyone was waiting to see what's he going to say when he makes that. He makes a speech a couple days later in Philadelphia um, to a group of immigrants, and he said, there is such a thing as a nation that's too proud to fight. And that was a signal to the country that Wilson was not going to take the country into war. And I think most Americans applauded that, with the exception, perhaps, of Theodore Roosevelt, who I think we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, yeah, we can just we can just jump to to Mr. Roosevelt. You know, uh, I think uh, Theodore Roosevelt is is probably again pretty well known among listeners, uh, just you know people who know something of American history. But I think most of what people know about Roosevelt is from before the First World War, um, some of his adventures and then his his presidency. So. What was Roosevelt doing sort of in this 1914 to 1917 period? And how was his relationship or what did he think, I guess, of what Wilson and Adams were doing? Well, it's funny because Roosevelt, and he says it in one of his letters, you know, at the time, he said, like, everything went right for me for 15 years or whatever. And everything has gone wrong for me <laughs> since. And it's almost like once he got out of the White House, it was one almost one setback after another for him. Um, he left the White House in 1909. He kind of turned turned over the the keys to the car to his his successor, uh, William Howard Taft, who we thought was going to follow his policies. Um, and Taft turned out not to be the same kind of leader that Roosevelt was. And Roosevelt soured on him very quickly. And by 1912, Roosevelt decided, I want to be president again. He tries to get the nomination in 1912, and the, the Republican Party regulars prevent him from getting it. And so he he breaks breaks away from he and his followers break apart from the Republicans and they start up a brand new party known as the Progressive Party or, or the Bull Moose Party, um, which was part of the broader progressive movement this time, the reform movement this time. And what's interesting at the, at the Progressive Party is that Jane Adams, who we, we mentioned before, is very involved in the party, very involved with Roosevelt. She actually seconds his nomination. In fact, my book begins with the, the seconding. Um, and the convention of the ni- of 1912, um, because Roosevelt, Adams, and Wilson are these three great progressives. That's something that kind of binds them together in this book, and they all know each other and, and work with each other at various times. Um, 
But Roosevelt, you know, he mounts this new party in 1912. It's a hopeless race, but he actually does very well in 1912. He finishes in second place. He, he finishes ahead of Taft in 1912 with the Progressive Party. And there was sort of a hope that the Progressive Party might turn into the Republican Party of 50, 60 years earlier, which started as a third party and, and, and suddenly becomes the second party in our two-party system. But the party did not grow as they hoped it would grow. It really was almost a Roosevelt party and not not a, a broader-based party. Um, and by 1914, by the time the war breaks out, the party is sort of already starting to show cracks. And so Roosevelt, when the war breaks out, is kind of at, he's in a difficult place. His party is not going where he thought it was going to go. And it's killing him that he's not president because this he can see that, that World War One is the greatest crisis of probably the last hundred years. And he wants to be in the White House. And the guy in the White House is a guy he hates. He hates Woodrow Wilson. He's hated him for years. He feels he's everything that, that Roosevelt is not, doesn't believe in his in his policies. Um, he, he comes to openly say he's the worst president we've ever had. And his secretary of state, William Jennings Bryant, is just as bad. So he's he's appalled by the direction of our foreign policy, and he's going to be appalled at the way Wilson handles uh, the German threat and the British issues and things like that over the next couple of years. And he's going to be a constant thorn in the side of Woodrow Wilson. Um, one of the things he's going to speak about incessantly is what they call preparedness, military preparedness, because the you know our army is pathetic in 1914. I think it's like 100,000. It's, it's very, very small. And Roosevelt's going to keep saying over and over, you know, we're going to need that army someday. And his his belief is, and I think in some ways he's more realistic than Wilson, is that if America's going to do anything around the world, do anything positive around the world, we need to have the military might to back it up. Our Navy is decent size. I think we were second or third in the war, but our army is not at all big enough. 100,000 is not enough, and we have to start addressing that. And that's going to take a while for Wilson to finally move in that direction. But Roosevelt will kind of be a lonely figure in 1914 into 1915, beating the drum on this issue. And a lot of Americans don't want to hear it. So he's very discouraged in 1914, 1915. See a lot of letters where he's, he's very depressed and people don't want to listen to me anymore. He gets sued for libel. He's, he's in court. So it, it's a difficult time, although things are going to start to turn around by late 1915, early 1916 where he really thinks he might have a chance to run for president against Wilson as a Republican. Um, but that's where pretty much where Roosevelt stands in the early years of, of uh, the European war. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. 
These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. So you mentioned, you know, the there was some shift in, in how Americans were thinking and, and Roosevelt was able to take advantage of that, maybe to to raise his chances of becoming president or, or running for office. So when we look at how things shift in the months before the declaration of war in 1917, you know, how does Wilson get to the point where he sort of supports getting into the war? Um, and, and how do how do Adams and, and the pacifists view that? You mentioned that they felt betrayed by that decision. I think Wilson wanted to absolutely avoid going to war if he could. Uh, he could see it was coming. And you, you get to the fall of 1916, uh, where the Germans are basically have a sense that, well, we're ahead right now. Uh, but we probably can't win a long war. So it really would be in our best interest if we can get this war ended now, ideally with us being allowed to keep what we've won so far. And what they want Wilson to do, actually, is sort of be the middleman in getting the two sides together. And so there's all this back and forth. We even have the Kaiser sending, sending, a, sending a correspondence to the United States secretly in English, uh, basically pushing pushing wilson to do this um and, and and dangling over the administration the threat that we're going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare which they had pulled back on uh because wilson in, in earlier in 1916 with the sinking of the sussex uh, had pretty much threatened them we're going to have a diplomatic split and that's probably going to lead to war so the the germans had we're, okay we're gonna we're gonna move to cruiser warfare uh where we will we will make sure that the passengers are are accounted for and things like that but the Germans were getting antsy in the fall of 1916 because, as I said, they felt they couldn't win a long war and we need to win now. We need to end it now while we're still ahead. So Wilson wasn't going to do anything, obviously. Uh, and he wasn't going to be strong-armed to doing anything. And, and, and his, his first job in the fall of 1916 was winning the election. Um, he ran against Charles Evans Hughes. We mentioned Roosevelt was trying to get the nomination. But again, the Republicans were not going to let that happen. He, they really had to punish him, basically, for kind of ruining things in 1912. So uh, TR is kept out of the nomination in 1916. They give it to Hughes, who was a Supreme Court justice. And Hughes and Wilson slug it out. It's a very, very, very close election, which I do discuss in some depth in the book. Uh, originally, they thought Hughes won. Um, but as the as the hours progressed, it became clear that it was going to all hinge on a couple of states. And eventually Wilson won. Uh, if, if I think something like 2000 or whatever votes shifted in California, Hughes wins the election, uh, wins the electoral votes he needs in California, wins the election. But anyway, uh, once the, the election is over in November 1916, uh, Wilson can see that the Germans are going to resume unrestricted warfare and Wilson sees that's going to lead to war. So Wilson believes, all right, I'm going to kind of do what I can do to prevent that from happening. I'm going to do a sort of some sort of peace outreach. So 
He works on this in November and into early December 1916 as sort of message to both sides saying, you know, let's see if we can bring figure out what what's what's keeping this war going. Can we find some way to 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 get a ceasefire, etc. In the middle of this, the Germans get tired of waiting for Wilson to do this because they've been waiting, waiting, like, is Wilson ever going to do this or not? And they float their own sort of half-hearted peace move, saying, okay, well, we're ahead and we're willing to talk if you want. And it was it was sort of a backhanded, half, half-hearted half uh, maneuver, which neither the, the British or the, or the, or the French were, were interested in. Um, but for Wilson, it was difficult because he had not put his own peace float, peace feelers out yet. And when he did a couple of days later, it looked like he was piggybacking on the German effort, which he really wasn't. Uh, so Wilson kind of throws a, throws a Hail Mary pass in December, 1916 again, saying, okay, can we find a way uh, to, to at least talk, you know, to get the two sides talking, but neither side is interested really. And, and in fact, the, the allies are furious that Wilson is doing this. They do not want him, putting this out there right now. Um, I feel feel it is not not the time to do it. And basically, I think, and, and your listeners, of course, are World War I experts, you know, they know that both sides had had sacrificed so much by this point, they just, they could not, they, there was no way they were going to stop unless they won. It was just, it was just too much. They felt they had to keep going to see if they could win the war. They were not going to settle anything less uh, than what Wilson, Wilson wasn't offering enough for them to be either side to be enticed. I think there's a quote from one of the, the, the from the British Foreign Office in 1916, where one of them said, "We might be interested in some sort of offer from America, only if our French allies felt they could go on no longer, and we're not at that point yet." So that was the problem that Wilson was facing. So the both sides reject his peace move. The German peace move goes nowhere in December 1916. And after that happens, you know, the German leadership basically says, okay, well, we tried this. So we have one way to win the war. We're going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare in early 1917. Uh, Yes, America might get involved, but by the time they really get involved, it'll be too late because we will have starved the British into submission and we will have won the war. That was the great plan, as you guys, your listeners, you and your listeners are certainly well aware of. I'm simplifying it considerably. So that was that was what happened. You know, they they said we're going to go for broke, and when that news is given to Wilson in February 1917 that the unrestricted submarine warfare is coming back, then he knows pretty much war is almost inescapable. Although I think even up to the last moment, he was hoping maybe the Germans will kind of back down like they have backed down in the past, but this time they don't back down. So he is pushed. And of course, the Zimmerman telegram was another push where that was a, you know, a, rather, a rather silly, foolish effort from, from the German foreign office to entice Mexico uh, into sort of tying up American forces with this idea that they, they would have the chance to, to take back American territory, which of course was preposterous. And there's even later on, there's material in the German foreign office where they're absolutely furious that this got out in the first place. So... These matters all push Wilson towards war. And I think the big thing for Wilson, too, he wanted to have a great impact on the peace process. And I think he pretty much realized, I have to be involved in the war. The U.S. must be involved in the war. And there's a, there's a scene in the book where Adams comes to the White House in, in early 1917 to talk to Wilson with a few other pacifists. And it's a, it's a very charged conversation they have. And, and, and Wilson tells Adams and the others that, 
if if America doesn't get involved in the war, I'd be lucky to get into the peace conference through a crack in the door. And that that is not acceptable to him. He wants to have a great deal to say in the peace process. He's already thinking the League of Nations. And after that meeting, that that's when I think the disillusionment among pacifists and among Adams kind of set in that Wilson is not who they thought they were. So that's sort of the process that takes Wilson away from war is not acceptable to war being something he doesn't really necessarily want to do, but feels he has to do it for the good of sort of the world, if not America. Yeah, I think that's interesting because that that really ties into a lot of the conversations that we've had on the podcast and anybody has if they talk about the Paris Peace Conference and the League of Nations around how, you know, Wilson believed he was making the best decision because he believed that he could sort of create this uh, system uh, after the war that, that would preserve peace hopefully for a long time. Right. Right. I mean, I think he was, he was floating that idea out in America in 1916. He had, he had talked a little bit about it. He hadn't gone so far that then in early 1917, when he did the, the peace without victory speech, when he really articulated it more uh, and that speech went over very well, but by that point, the Germans had already made their decision to go to war. I mean, not to go to war, but to, to, to resume um, unrestricted submarine warfare. And Wilson, again, he had he had this notion. I think he's a very complex figure about what, what he wanted to do and what he felt was possible. Um, Roosevelt, you know, did not agree with, with a lot of things that, that Wilson was doing. He also felt that, you know, the League of Nations, he never he never thought that was going to be a great idea. He felt that America needed to keep the agreements that she had already made with countries before entering into any sort of other other uh, potential potential sort of institution like this. Now, some of this, of course, it was simply that Roosevelt, by 1916-17, was going to oppose anything that, that Wilson was in favor of, or, or Taft, for that matter, because Taft was also interested in this. And Taft was part of an organization, which I talk about in the book, the uh, the League to Enforce Peace, was, which was sort of another another idea for some sort of international peacekeeping uh, organization that would be formed after the war. They hoped to form after the war. But all these, you know, all these ideas, I think, you know, are just bubbling under the surface in early 1917. And when Wilson has to take the country into war, as I said, I think he 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 was reluctant. But finally, once he once he saw it had to be done, at least in his own mind, he went into it fairly fairly willingly. Um, he wasn't sure, you know. There's 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 conversations in the book between Wilson and his his advisor, Colonel House, and and House talks about how Wilson was was concerned that he wasn't the right sort of president president to be leading a country during war, and and House kind of reassures him and says, you know, look, other other leaders have done this in other other countries. You can you can just follow what they did, follow the template basically that had been set, and you'll be fine. And House, in some way, proved to be correct because Wilson. Uh, certainly, certainly ended up being a, a fairly adept war president. Although obviously some of the decisions he made uh, caused a great deal of controversy. Although that's not something I really get into the book too much, as the book stops in, in, the, in the spring of 1917 with the war, and then there's a brief epilogue afterwards, uh, which discusses what happens to some of the main characters in this book. Um, so I know that Roosevelt, speaking of what happens to them after the book, you know, I know Roosevelt dies pretty brief pretty shortly after the war, 1919, if I remember correctly, and, and Wilson does as well. But Adams, I know, kind of goes on, ha- has quite a bit more story after the war. Could you just kind of talk about some of Adams' life and, and what she did after after 1917? 
Adams, when the war began, found herself really on the outs in the United States because she, you know, a lot of the a lot of her colleagues in the peace movement kind of jumped ship once the war began and, and rallied behind the government, rallied behind the war effort and sort of said, OK, well, we're at war now. And and to throttle Germany is is, is, is the best thing to do for peace. You know, the, the whole idea of the war, the war to end all wars, you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to win this war and there'll be no more wars in the future. Um, Adams never did this. Um, she continued to believe, you know, she continued to stick to her pacifist principles. And almost immediately when the war began, she she kind of created controversy by by making some statements about, you know, we should be concerned about starving German citizens and, we you know, that type of thing. It's um, she gets a lot of hate mail. Uh, the organization she had been part of, the Women's Peace Party, they have people people defacing their door. Um, and this is a woman who had been so beloved be, be, before the war. I mean, everyone loved Jane Addams. She was the, this do-gooding American saint. But uh, a lot of people absolutely think she's disloyal. Um, she does find a niche during the war. Uh, she goes to work for the Food Administration, which was one of these administrations that the, the Wilson administration, the Wilson uh, administration set up. Uh, to sort of take care of food needs, to, to conserve food in the United States so there's enough for the troops and things like that. So she does some speaking for the for them, uh, but she 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 believed the war was a mistake. Um, and during the 1920s, she continues her pacifist ad- ways and attitudes, and, and the country is drifting towards the right in the 1920s. So her views are still are seen as being radical and subversive. And you have uh, Hoover and, and and the Bureau of Investigation. Uh, putting her under surveillance in the 1920s, and by then she's a, she's in her mid 60s, and they still think she's she's dangerous. In fact, there's quotes from some organizations in the 1920s, like the American Legion, calling her the most dangerous woman in the country. By the 30s, there's kind of been a shift, and I think part of it is because there's a great disillusionment. And again, your listeners are probably familiar with this about World War One that it had been a, a, a terrible mistake, but for everyone, and I think there's a sense that you know what maybe. Adams and the pacifists were right. And you start seeing a change in attitudes towards Adams. And suddenly she's getting all these, these awards, she, good housekeeping, the most mainstream women's magazine there is at that time. I think named her as one of the, the greatest American women or greatest living women or something like that. And then she gets the Nobel prize, uh, Nobel peace prize um, at that time. So by the time she dies in 1935, she's kind of come full circle. You know, she, she had been incredibly beloved before the war hated almost after the war, and then by the early 30s near her death, she again has been embraced and made into an icon, who, as I said, has been unfortunately forgotten in our own time, but I think she does deserve to be remembered. Um, I want to also mention, you mentioned Roosevelt. Roosevelt, we should probably talk about how one of the things he wanted so much to do once we got involved in the war was to go abroad and serve, uh, ideally, like he had done during the Spanish-American War as part of the Rough Riders. You know, he'd done the Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War, and he wanted to go fight uh, in the Great War. Isn't he like 50-ish, 55-ish at that time? Like He is, oh. he is. But he had been, this has been his, his, his fantasy he had been talking about since about 1914, where he was going to, you know, raise troops. And, and by 1917, he had, they, you know, there's different estimates. He may have had 50,000, 60,000 men lined up, you know, all these volunteers who were, who were willing to go with him. Uh, and he, he, he said he was not going to command them. There would be, you know, there'd be a general above him. He would only, he would, he would accept being just a colonel or whatever. Uh, and he has a lot of support for this. You know, a lot of his followers say, let Roosevelt go. 
Um, and when the when when Wilson makes his speech to Congress, a couple of days later, Roosevelt shows up at the White House to talk to him. And this is so this is again an interesting, great scene in the book where Roosevelt and Wilson, you know, these two men who hated each other, and Roosevelt had been had been criticizing him nonstop, but Roosevelt shows up at the White House to, you know, uh, to compliment Wilson on his speech um, and then to talk about letting him go abroad to to fight. And Wilson is, is, is not stupid enough to say yes or no at the time. He, he just says, OK, I'll think about it and things like that. But eventually, even though there was a lot of political pressure on Wilson, there's no way he's going to let him go. Um, and it's not even so much that Roosevelt was not fit physically, which I don't think he was, but uh, the the military authorities did not want an ex president going <laughs> to go fight fight in in the trenches. Number one, they knew he'd be he'd have his nose and everything. They didn't want him there. Um, they didn't want volunteer. They didn't want a, a separate volunteer force. There were a lot of reasons they didn't want it. Uh, but but Wilson basically said, you know, even though Congress. When they when they did the Selective Service Act, they included a provision saying, "Okay, well, the president has the right to include some volunteer divisions." Uh, but Wilson said, "I'm not going to avail myself of that, and uh, unfortunately, Mr. Roosevelt is not going to be able to. I'm not going to allow him to go over." Now that just made Roosevelt hate Wilson even more and more because he he really he wanted to go overseas and be killed in action. That, that's almost what he was hoping for. He felt there was no better way to end his life and end his career. Uh, doing doing something like that, um, I think again he physically he really was not in very good shape by that point. Um, I think it would have been it would not have been a good idea. It was also the political dimension. There was there were some people who said you know if let's say Roosevelt goes over and he distinguishes himself, uh, guess who'd be sitting ready to win the presidency in 1920? Because uh, there was already talk about a Wilson Roosevelt um, presidential. Uh, rematch in 1920. There was talk that R- Wilson was going to break the two-term uh, tradition and run for a third term in 1920, and that Roosevelt was going to run against him because Roosevelt kind of come back to the Republican Party. So it, it would have been um, shocking had Wilson allowed him to go, but Roosevelt hoped and hoped and hoped that he was going to let him go. Uh, but that ended up being that that hope was dashed, and he was very very bitter about that. Uh, for the remainder of his life. And he, of course, felt that Wilson, he had mishandled the lead up to the war and he felt he felt he's going to mishandle America's um, actual going to war. And there were some things that Roosevelt was right in that if the United States had prepared militarily sooner, let's say in 1916 or 1915, the country would have been would have been able to put a substantial force into action much sooner than it did. So Roosevelt, in some ways, was right in that regard. Now, Wilson would have said, well, there's no way I could have gotten that through Congress at the time because most of the country was not ready to finance a substantial increase in the military until well into 1915 and 1916. So a couple couple different things going on there, but I did want to include the the Roosevelt trying to go over and fight story. I thought that would be of interest to your Mm -hmm. listeners who may not have heard it before. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thinking sort of outside the, the contents of, of your book here, you know, one of the first things I do when there's a possibility I'm going to interview somebody is I go look at other things they've written. Uh, and you've written some very well-reviewed books on the history of baseball, specifically on the Negro League baseball. So what kind of caused you to 
to to write this book, I guess, like, you know, changing kind of topics, although still within the realm of history. Well, I had done the three books on on baseball. I had done two books on the Negro Leagues. And then the last book before this one was a was a biography of Roy Campanella, uh, who played in the, in the major leagues, but also was a Negro Leaguer himself. And I felt that I had I had done enough on on sports and enough on baseball. And I was hoping that, you know, going to a, a more broad based book on history might might find more readers. You know, sports readership is kind of narrow, I think, and I think baseball readership is probably even more narrow than that. So I was hoping by taking a topic, you know, such as World War One and with some recognizable figures, that would that would help me to get more readers. So what led me to this topic in particular was I was looking at uh, an older series of books that were written in the 20s and 30s by Mark Sullivan. Mark Sullivan was a was a was a great journalist of his time. He was he was he knew everyone. You know, he knew Roosevelt really well. He knew Wilson, and he was a he wrote for Collier's. You know, Collier's was that was a was a big uh, magazine at the time, and he wrote a series of books in the 1920s and 1930s about recent American history, which would be you know, the early, early 20th century. And he was somebody who would live through it. And they're really, they're, they're fascinating books. Uh, lots of interesting, you know, visuals in these books. And he, he does a lot of social history, which was not really being done as much in those days as it is now. So he has things about the popular music of the time and the movies and, and also the, the, the nuts and bolts political history too. Um, but I picked up some of his books on, on the World War One. I. I think he did six volumes from that period. And there's one or two on World War One in America and as I started reading them, I thought, this is really interesting stuff. And, and I don't know much about it. I don't think most people know much about this period. And I think there's there's probably some sort of book here. Um, and that's what led me to think, you know, getting involved, getting into World War One is so important. Like, why don't we know more about it? I mean, one of, one of the premises of this book is this this decision of America to go to war is the most important decision maybe of, of America's American history, because the entire 20th century turns on the results of World War One. As again, your listeners, of course, know this. You know, everything changes because of what happens in World War One, and the outcome of World War One was very much shaped by American involvement. And if America doesn't get involved in the war, we could have all kinds of different scenarios for the for for the, for the war itself and the rest of the 20th century. So I think it was a a really really important decision, and I think to understand how the decision was made. Uh, I felt that there was a book there and I felt telling it through these characters and kind of making it a character study uh, of these three individuals while telling the story, the larger story of the decision process um, could make an interesting book. So that's, that's what led me to it. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming here on the podcast to talk about, talk about your book and some of the things that you, you researched along the way. Um, it, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.